I always love getting questions about theology and especially questions about the liturgy, about why we say and do the things that we say and do in church. What do they mean and what is their significance? I got a really good question about the Lord's Prayer. Why are there two versions of the Lord's Prayer? A longer one and a shorter one. The longer one, of course, being the one with the end, ending, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc., etc. Why are there two of them? Of course, I've got questions about why is the altar where it is? What is the significance of moving it, and what is our church architecture all about? Now, I'm going to answer that question on November 21st, and so stay tuned for more information on that. The question about the Lord's Prayer, if you want to know the answer, ask Judy. Judy has the answer. Or you can ask me, but I'm not going to tell you right now. And then I had a question about liturgical colors. Why do we have liturgical colors? What's the significance? Is it just to symbol that something's changing? Or is there something more to it? And so I like any of these kinds of questions. And I will answer the last one about the liturgical colors. We are in the period known as Trinity Tide, the period after Trinity Sunday, also known as the period or the time after Pentecost or ordinary time. It's a time that takes up about half the church's calendar. It's kind of a boring time, you could almost say. It's a time, a downtime in the life of the church. It takes about half of the year. And by boring or downtime, I mean it doesn't have the excitement of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter. It's kind of just a time of coasting almost. You know, the summer comes along and everything that comes with it. And so it's just kind of a downtime in the life of the church. But it's green because green symbolizes the time of growth, of personal spiritual growth, of the time where the person, the individual and the church are growing in the knowledge and the love of God. And so the lectionary is very intentionally structured around the seasons and the calendar of the church, the lectionary being the readings that we are assigned from Sunday to Sunday. So the reading that Phil did from Philippians and the gospel reading from Matthew, these have been used in the life of the church on the 22nd Sunday after Trinity for nearly 2,000 years. So the church in her wisdom has created and structured a way of reading the scriptures, a way of entering into liturgical time in a way that makes sense, in a way that works on us unintentionally and often in ways we don't notice. But more on that in a moment. All this to say that our lessons for the year are kind of now coming to a summation because we are entering into the end of the church's liturgical year. Advent is in four Sundays, I think, believe it or not. And then we start the new liturgical year that everything that comes with it. And so the lectionary is giving us kind of tying a bow on the end of our time of growth and discipleship. And as I said, the liturgy is what forms us in the readings of the scriptures. I'm all okay with people reading their own Bibles, but the liturgy and the wisdom of the church are far better than this idea of me and my Bible sitting in my easy chair and I glean whatever wisdom I get. No, we need that wisdom and that structure that the church provide to us over its long-lived experience. Because as I said, the liturgy 
orders and structures our lives in a profound way. When I was serving at, uh, as an assistant curate in um, uh, Gray and Bruce counties, one of the parishes I had learned had not celebrated uh, a mass with the Book of Common Prayer in about 30 years. And at the time I was newly ordained and I asked them, well, I need a little practice doing Book of Common Prayer. Would you mind if I did that? And they said, oh, wow, we would love it. It's been 30 plus years since we've been able to do Book of Common Prayer. And the point is, is that the Sunday came to do it and no one cracked a book. No one had the little red prayer book that is in the pews. But they all knew the service by heart. Haven't said it in 30 years because it was so deeply imbued into their psyche, into their hearts and minds so deeply. And that's the power of the liturgy and why it's so important for us and why we spend so much time doing these things. I learned this more powerfully more recently with my stroke. All I could say with prayers was the daily office of morning prayer and the rosary. And I couldn't say them all in one go. I would do it in bits and pieces as my brain would allow me. But there was something there that allowed me to hold on to something that as I sat in the hospital bed just stroked out of my brain, um, I had something that I could hold on to. And the liturgy is kind of like that. It gives us, as I said, a structure. It gives us a way of offering our praise and our thanksgiving. It teaches us how to live the Christian life on the days between Sundays. Now, during the pandemic, the liturgy was the only thing that I was permitted to do by the bishop. And sometimes I wasn't even permitted to do the liturgy. As you know, there were times where it, we were not able to do pretty much anything as, the, as a church. And as a priest, there was very little that I was able to do. And so like you, it was a period of learning and relearning, of adjusting and readjusting and of adapting and to what all this meant. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about the liturgy and re-educating myself and thinking about the power of its structure, of its direction and what it can offer us, especially in times when we cannot meet, especially in times of darkness and trouble and suffering. The liturgy, as I said, shows us how to structure and direct our lives as Christians. It shows us the structure of our lives is prayer and petition and praise. It's lament, it's repentance, it's the receiving of gifts. But the liturgy also offers us a direction. It points us toward Christ in the same way that our building literally points us toward Christ and his cross. You can't get any farther in this building, at least this part of the building, than the cross. All roads, all paths lead to the cross. There is nothing at the end of that other than Jesus Christ and his cross. We can go no further than that. And we need to go no further than that. Because that is the spot where heaven is breaking into earth where we receive the gifts of God. The other thing about the liturgy that directly relates to our readings today is how the liturgy reminds us of the structure of repentance and forgiveness in our lives. Now, there are some among my colleagues who say we need to get rid of all this language of sin and forgiveness because it's so, it's such a downer. It makes us feel bad. It's beating ourselves up. We need to be uplifted and we need to feel good. But 
Repentance and forgiveness are not about beating ourselves up. They are not about this guilt. Remember Monty Python and the monks walking around beating themselves with the wood, I mean the, the panels of wood on their heads. Or, you know, uh, people whipping themselves. It's not about that. It's not about that. When we come to the Lord in repentance and asking forgiveness, it's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement that God is God and I am not. It's an acknowledgement that I need forgiveness and mercy. I need them so fundamentally in my life that if without forgiveness and mercy, I cannot function as a human being. So that's what this confession is. It's an acknowledgement that, yes, we do fall into sin, that, yes, there are habits and things that so easily ensnare us and put us away from God, because the fundamental human sin is always to think that I am God. But the confession of sins reminds us that I am not God. And in fact, it's in fact when I think I'm God that I really start making mistakes and I really need to ask for that forgiveness and mercy. It's about learning to give and to receive forgiveness. Because God is God and I am not. God is God means that God's default position is always to forgive. God will never reject a request for mercy and forgiveness ever. He will always say yes to heartfelt, genuine repentance where a person is genuinely seeking to receive God's forgiveness. God's default is grace, mercy, and forgiveness. I am not God. My default position is not grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In fact, I have a hard time receiving and giving forgiveness. I have a hard time receiving forgiveness because sometimes I think I'm not worthy of receiving forgiveness. That I've done something so bad that I couldn't possibly be worthy of receiving the forgiveness that's being offered to me. And I have a hard time giving forgiveness because that SOB deserves my anger and my hatred and every ill wish that I have for them because they hurt me. And so they deserve it to not receive my forgiveness. But the liturgy reminds us in our own lives between Sundays that I am not God, that I am just as broken and as fallible as the people that I have a hard time forgiving. I'm just as broken and fallible as the people who have hurt me. You ever notice in the Lord's Prayer, the structure of the Lord's Prayer? We pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. That and joins the previous clause to the later one. Because the reality is that I am tempted in my own life to not extend the forgiveness that I've received. We all know what that's like. Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us, and lead us not into the temptation of not forgiving them. Lead us not into the temptation of thinking that they are unworthy of forgiveness because they have hurt me more than they can think or imagine. Lord, lead me away from that and lead me to see your forgiveness and how it works. We say this confession right at the beginning of the liturgy because we need to put it up front to remind ourselves that what we are about to do 
is to approach this God of mercy and love and that his mercy and love are new every morning. We point ourselves and orient ourselves to the cross because the cross reminds us that God's default is to forgive, forgive, forgive. Because none of us is really worthy of that forgiveness. And yet God gives it to us anyway. Archbishop Desmond Tutu wrote, once wrote a book entitled, There's No Future Without Forgiveness. And he was, of course, talking about his own experience being a black man in apartheid South Africa. But it's also a lesson for all of us in our own lives, in the lives of our family, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our country, that there is no future without forgiveness. The liturgy of the prayer book of New Zealand in the absolution of sin puts it in seven or eight very stark words. After we've confessed our sins, the priest then says, God forgives you, forgive others, forgive yourself. God forgives you, forgive others, forgive yourself. A few words, but very, very powerful in their meaning. It's a call and a summons to live this life of forgiveness, to make it so deep within me that it becomes my default position. Now, this doesn't mean becoming a doormat. It doesn't mean that forgiveness is a switch that I flick on and everything is gravy and I can just get on with my life, especially when I've been deeply hurt. That's not what's being suggested here. It's about learning to live into that reality of God's forgiveness working in me. Because by my own strength, I can't forgive those who've hurt me. But God can. Because that's the way that God works. Human justice will always seek revenge and retaliation. It'll seek retribution. It'll seek to hurt as I have been hurt. But God's justice says, I will take all that hurt. And I will make something of it. I will make it divine grace and mercy. The liturgy teaches us to anticipate and to reciprocate God's forgiveness given to us. But it takes a lifetime of formation, week after week of learning the rhythms of the liturgy to have it deep into our bones. You remember a few years ago when that guy went and shot 14 Amish girls in their schoolhouse? Tragic story. Guy, I don't know what his story, I don't know what his problem was, but he just walked into the schoolhouse and shot up these four, 14 young girls. He was someone from the community, not from the Amish community, but from the farming community. And his mom and dad lived in this community. They did business with the Amish. They were neighbors with the Amish. They had a lifetime spent there working beside, side by side these families whose daughters had been taken from them. And after their son committed this heinous, heinous act, they said, we have to leave. Because out of their guilt and out of their shame, they could not forgive themselves for what their son had done. So they said, we're going to sell the farm and we're going to leave. Their Amish neighbors, their, their, their neighbors who had lost their daughters in a brutal, unimaginable way, went to them and said, no, please don't leave. You are part of who we are. You are our neighbors. We love you. And yes, your son has done this thing that is awful and horrible. And yes, it's going to be hard for us to pick up the pieces of our lives. But their default position was forgiveness. Under 
unimaginable circumstances, these Amish people had so ingrained themselves into the rhythms and of God's mercy and forgiveness that is as hard as it was, they were able to reach out to the family of this man who did this awful, awful thing. We all need grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and it starts with God, who makes this possible to work within us. Now, as your priest, I have to stand up here before you and ask for your forgiveness. I'm not doing this for self-pity. Self-pity doesn't do anything. Pity does very little. Forgiveness mends. Forgiveness heals. Forgiveness builds up. So I ask for your forgiveness, not because of pity, but because it's an acknowledgement that we need each other. I ask for your forgiveness because I am not the priest that can do everything for you. I will fail. I have deficits now that I never thought I would have. I've made mistakes. I've said things that I shouldn't have. I've spoken when I should have listened. I've listened when I should have spoken. But I am doing this as an acknowledgement that we need each other. And the only way that we can have this with each other is when we can set aside those things that have gotten in the way and restore based on God's love and mercy. Because we need each other now more than ever. We have to learn what it means to practice grace and mercy in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our neighbors, in the lives of our world. Because we know what happens when there's a refusal to forgive. It breaks down lives, it breaks down families, it breaks down churches, it breaks down countries. We know the Christian life and the life of any parish is going to be marred by mistakes and deficiencies and rivalries and factions and I don't like this and I don't like that. And we've all messed up. It's part of our human nature. It's part of what it means to live in a world that is ensnared by sin. So we can complain, we can gripe, or we can realize that in the words of our lesson from Philippians, that God has begun a work in us in us individually, in us as a parish, and that work that he has begun is the work of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Because I can't do those things on my own, but God can. And so my prayer for us all is that we would open ourselves anew to that mercy of God, which is new every morning. That we would grow into what it means to be a people and a, of grace and mercy. Like I said, it's not flipping the switch and just getting rid of hurts that have lingered for a long time, but it's learning to live into what it means to be a people of grace and mercy. A people who turn themselves continually to the cross to see there embodied God's love and mercy and forgiveness given to all who would turn to him. May God find us faithful in this. Amen.